Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Nursing Standard podcast. My name is Alison Stacey and I'm a senior reporter on the news team at RCNI. This week's episode is focusing on rudeness and incivility at work, how it impacts patient outcomes and how to challenge it in your workplace. I'm joined by Dr Chris Turner. Chris is a consultant in emergency medicine at the University Hospital Coventry and it's also the founder of Civility Saves Lives, a campaign group that works to raise awareness about the importance of being civil when working in the health service. I spoke to Chris about all forms incivility can take, how it impacts safety, and what to do when you encounter it. Let's go to our conversation. So my name's Chris Turner. I'm a consultant in emergency medicine at University Hospitals Coventry in Warwickshire. And alongside that, I started a thing called Civility Saves Lives about probably about seven years ago. And the, the purpose of it, literally just going to go out and have give a lecture um, about the impact of behaviour on performance. And the response was really amazing. People wanted to talk about this. People wanted to spend time discussing it amongst themselves and realised that pretty quickly um, that Joe Farmer and I, who, who'd had the initial conversation, realised that there was an appetite for this, probably fed by the, probably fed by how poorly we treat each other in healthcare a lot of the time, and that once you start to recognise that behaviour has a material impact on our performance at individual team and organisational level um, changes what we should expect of each other. And people were very open to holding a conversation about it. And that's what's been going on for the last few years. So what impact does incivility have and what might it look like in the workplace? So I'll take it in that order because it's it's kind of helpful. It seems backwards, but, it, but it's kind of helpful to do in that order. So basically, if somebody treats us in a way that makes us feel that they have been uncivil, that we interpret it as threat. And when we interpret it as threat, what happens is we start to trigger fight or flight. It doesn't feel like fight or flight. It just feels uncomfortable. It feels a bit, yeah. Uh, but what goes on inside our head is our cognitive resources get diverted, diverted away from being able to think logically and being able to come up with great ideas. And towards this, hang on a second, am I in threat? Am I am I going to need to fight? Am I going to need to run away? And it's not as overt as it is when we get into the situations where uh, where we really do feel immediate threat and you get that burst of adrenaline. But it's real and it has an impact and it steals from our cognitive resources. And one of the statistics that's often quoted is that in the moment, it results in about a 61% reduction in our cognitive ability. That is to say that our bandwidth, our, the number of things we can think about just shrinks right down as our kind of primal brain is getting ready to to respond to something that might be really bad. So that's that's what's going on at uh, an individual level. But what, what else is going on? So, well, you said, what do people find as uncivil? Well, the really difficult thing about this is what's uncivil to me might not be uncivil to you. 
and it's a really personal thing. So I may not have intended to be uncivil to you. I might have used a colloquial expression, which is completely normal in the environment that I come from. Um, but you might find offensive. And it's not my intent that matters. It's how it feels to you. And I mean, I, I come from I come from a, a sweary specialty. Emergency medicine is quite a sweary specialty. I think most people would say I come from a sweary culture. Scottish culture is more sweary than English culture. And we use swearing in a, um, yeah, a much more illustrative and constructive fashion than you English guys do. Um, <laughs> Let's not make this into an English person, Scott. Oh, no, let's do it. No, um, no. So basically, basically, I discovered that when I came to England, the way that I used language was actually quite offensive to some people. And I've really had to moderate that over the years because it's not about my intent. It's about how it feels to the person on the receiving end of it. And that's how it feels to us on the receiving end of it is what has the impact on our performance at an individual level. And that then feeds into team performance and even organisational performance. So examples of incivility. Um, it's it's low-level stuff. It, this isn't somebody being directly, sort of overtly threatening or in your face. It's more stuff that, that could potentially be misinterpreted. You know, the person who eye-rolls when you speak. Or, or the person who finishes your sentence off for you when they couldn't possibly know what you, the end of your sentence was, or, or the person who corrects your English halfway through the sentence. It's that kind of thing. It's it's pretty low level, but it still has an impact on our ability to perform. So that's the sort of thing that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about somebody who's in your face overtly threatening you, because it's pretty clear that that has a hugely negative impact on people's ability to perform. I mean, what do you do in a team where there might be a main offender of that sort of behaviour? Do you just do you just have to pass them off as, oh, they're just rude or or should they be challenged? No. OK, so so the worst thing we can do is just pass it off as they're just rude. It's professionally unfair to them and it's professionally unfair to the people in the team and if we're talking about healthcare it is unfair to patients because it results in poorer performance by everybody and poorer outcomes for patients so we can't just pass it off as hey it's just them but we all know that we hear people saying oh do you know what that's just chris he's just always like that well does chris know and the responsibility becomes one to let somebody know when their behaviour is causing others to be distressed. And that means that we do need to find ways to hold those conversations. The, the conversation is essential, but how we do it and when we do it becomes much more important and nuanced because there are times when you would want to call it out in the moment. And there are times when that would be a disaster. And we might choose to have the conversation later. There are other times when there are, when, when it is the right thing to challenge in the moment. But in general, it's quite a threatening thing to do for both the person challenging and the person being challenged. And it often ends up in a bad place. So what we tend to encourage people to do is to 
follow the maxim of um, praise in public, feedback or criticise in private, and wait until the moment is right, and then we have a conversation with the person that was involved in it. And the conversation is not a go into the conversation, not thinking that you need to get somebody else to change. The conversation, the purpose of the conversation is solely to let that person you're speaking to know that whatever they were involved in left other people feeling uncomfortable. And it's not to assign intent. It's not to say you did a bad thing. It's to say, hey, when you're in that, after that conversation, people felt uncomfortable. So when we teach people to do this, we we teach the two overriding principles. The first one is that you're going to land the information with somebody. The second one is that you're going to do it compassionately, not going to be judgmental about them at all. And then when they when we teach people to have the conversation, we teach them to have the conversation in three parts. The first part is the check in. The second part is a shot across the bows. And the third part is landing the information. And it basically goes like this. Are you OK? No, really, are you OK? Last time I said to somebody, no, really, are you OK? He spoke to me for eight minutes after that. He was not OK. The bit after that is is it helps if it's really specific. So you might say, hey, Paul, what happened in the conversation that you had with Sophie yesterday? And that lets Paul know that there's been something that happened in the conversation with Sophie the day before. He may or may not. Um, recognize that anything happened, but it does give him a chance to reflect. And the final bit is landing the information. This is assuming that Paul hasn't surfaced that in the conversation. And the landing the information goes like this. It's really carefully constructed. So Paul, after you and Sophie spoke yesterday, she was really upset and I know that you'd want to know. And that is it. That is the full stop. There's no there's no judgment. There's no, and you're a bad person. There's no implication of intent. There is simply a conversation where we let somebody know that somebody else felt bad after an interaction with us. What we know about this is that's the level of information that people need to choose to change most of the time. This guy called Jerry Hickson, who's a paediatrician in Nashville, started looking at this Oh, about 20 years ago and basically his numbers when I went to see him in Nashville which is weirdly what we did before Zoom and Teams and stuff um, and it's only about five five years ago I went to see him and he was telling me that they had done 37,000 of those cup of coffee conversations and only 2,000 people repeat offended afterwards despite wow. the fact that yeah yeah despite the fact that people think that folk are being deliberately obnoxious they're really not they don't know how they're landing with the people around them. And when somebody lets them know, they simply choose to change a lot of the time. And that's why we have the conversation with compassion. We care about the person that we're talking to, even if we think they've been a complete idiot. We care about them in the conversation because nobody wants to be a complete idiot. And very, very few people are deliberately trying to hurt folk around them. Um, I know we all feel that people are, but actually that's, it's just not the case. If you if you look at the evidence on this, we're far, far more likely to misinterpret somebody else's actions as negative than they are to be intentionally negative by the person doing it. 
So you say, I mean, the, the name of your programme is Incivility Saves Lives. Is there... Incivility um, Saves Lives, Alison. Sorry, incivility kills not, people. Not incivility. <laughs> Actually, sorry. do you know what? Occasionally, no, occasionally, incivility saves lives as well. And let's be honest about that. There are times when... There are times when, when you just need to say, no, stop that now. Mm-hmm. Stop it. And you have to dominate people in order to stop them doing something. It's just that they're vanishingly rare. I mean, some people might hear that and dismiss it and say, oh, you know, a bit of nonsense or they might not take it that I'm seriously. Have you been? Yeah, they might be flippant about it. Have Is there, I mean, could you give us sort of a scenario at work where you've seen that it really does impact on patient safety? Oh, I, I think hundreds of scenarios where it impacts on patient safety. I think rather than giving you a specific scenario, what I would say to you is I think that many of the people listening will have been in situations where they felt that they've been treated poorly and they felt and they've known they've not responded well afterwards. And they've thought, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm too soft. Maybe I need to toughen up to work around here. And the the truth is that that is just a terrible place to be because it's not just them. You know, it's not just you when you feel bad about this. It's most of us. And if we create cultures where people have to be hard as nails in order to actually deliver health care, that's an absolute, an absolute disaster because we know that healthcare that's delivered in a hard fashion results in poorer outcomes for patients. Compassionate healthcare results in better outcomes for patients. If nurses are given the time and space to be compassionate to patients, then patients have better outcomes. In, in a landmark study on this stuff, um, if nurses are given the opportunity to provide overtly compassionate care, and almost all nursing care is compassionate, but overtly compassionate care took about 40 seconds longer to give to patients. If you give overtly compassionate care prior to having a major operation in the post-operative period, those patients were using 50% less opiates in their PCIs. Patients respond better to us as healthcare providers being able to show that we care about them. And that's difficult. It's difficult to show that we care about people when we work in environments where we're all at each other, where people are treating each other poorly and it's really difficult when we're in environments where there simply aren't enough people to to provide the care which is frequently the situation that we're in just now so the civility stuff's not a panacea because there is a massive organizational component to this it is extremely difficult to be the best version of yourself in an environment where you are stretched beyond the reasonable tolerances of a human being and that happens to many of us within healthcare currently Sorry, that was a slight rant on the end of what I started talking about. No, I was going to ask you about that because clearly nurses, doctors, you know, care workers, everybody is feeling um, stretched at the moment and not just, you know, in an emergency situation, you know, community nurses, in the GP practices, everywhere. I mean, sometimes, you know, people are burnt out, they're tired. Um, How... How do sort of if you're a manager or um, if you're working within a close team, how do you promote that that in, um, that civility must be not incivility? Civility should be prioritised. And is it leading by example? Is it yes? Yeah, it's it, it's that. It's 
it's leading by example. It's having environments where we can talk about this. It's not expecting everybody to be perfect all the time either, because that's impossible. Everybody screws this stuff up sometimes. I'm going on to nights tonight and I am aware that we will be very stretched and I will have to be careful about how I interact with other people. One of the interesting things around this is, um, you know, prioritising. You said about prioritising. I mean, I think we should, people sometimes say, but it's really basic. I think basic's the wrong word. I think it's fundamental. How we treat each other is fundamental. And I think we should make it a fundamental part of who we are as teams, that we treat each other well. Because for too long, people have felt that treating each other like within healthcare is just a normalised thing and that's okay, that's how we do it. We treat patients well and each other poorly. Well, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So I think we make it a fundamental, but it's also worth remembering that the single most important person determining the quality of day that you're going to have at work is your immediate line manager. When they're in a good place, you're likely to be in a good place. When they're not in a good place, then your chances of having a great day are significantly um, reduced. So when we're line managing people, who we are to them becomes hugely important. So obviously in the NHS or in a lot of the health service, there's a sort of a traditional hierarchy within within the teams. What would you do if you're like a student nurse or a newly qualified nurse and you're in a situation where there's a, con you know, a consultant, an ED consultant, should we say, that has been rude to you and you sort of, you get anxious when they're around, they snap yeah. at you. They're, I mean, how as a, you know, somebody new in the workplace, how can you approach that? Because... I imagine you wouldn't have the confidence to challenge somebody that's so experienced. Maybe they're a bit of a bull in the china shop, and they they cause damage when they're when they're around, and they might not be aware. Whose whose job is that to to challenge them? Okay, so the absolute worst person to do this. So this is I am now answering the opposite to your question. The absolute worst person to do this is the person who feels that they are the victim of it. And the reason that they're the worst person to do it is because their bandwidth is all squeezed. They can't think very well. They're getting into these conversations they're, or they're expected to have this conversation with the person who treated them negatively and they believe that that person tried to hurt them. So, you know, why would you want to go and have that conversation? You're just too stressed to have it. And, you know, all of these interventions that state that the responsibility for speaking about this lies it lies on the shoulders of the the victim they all miss the point the victim's not able to go and do that so who should do it the evidence is pretty clear that the person who should do it shouldn't be the person who was directly involved in fact the person who was directly involved shouldn't even probably be there when this conversation is being had and i know that this this is different to some of the advocacy models that exist, particularly within nursing, where people try and help folk to go and help hold that conversation. The reality is that people just don't want to have those conversations because they are too uncomfortable. And there's often such a um, there's such a steep hierarchy gradient between the people that are speaking. So if we want to have those conversations, the right person to have them is somebody who's about the same level on the hierarchy. So 
you know, I would hope that at work, if if I was being if I was not treating people well, I would hope that the band sevens, band eights would feel able to come and talk to me about it. Um, I think they, I think at least some of them would, um, because they have done in the past. And in the same way, you know, I've spoken to them when there's been an issue on, on their side, because we have a relationship where we trust each other. So the right person to have the conversation is probably somebody at a peer level rather than somebody above or below someone on the hierarchy. And the conversation, to go back to our beginning, but the conversation is one that's held with compassion. It's one that's held without judgment. It's one that is designed to pass a piece of information over that doesn't say that I was a bad person. It says that somebody else felt bad after the interaction that they'd had with me. Which is which is a different thing to saying that someone's a bad person. It just says, hey, you need to think about how you're having these interactions and you need to think about what you're going to do to make it better. Uh, one of the most powerful things that we have in our armory, and, that, and some people just can't do it, and it's a massive Achilles heel if you can't do it, is saying sorry. Saying sorry is so powerful. When, when I have screwed up, and I, okay, I can think of an example of this. Um, I had a patient in recess, this was years ago, I had a patient in recess and I wanted to cardiovert them. I was going to electrically cardiovert them. So we're going to sedate them, we're going to shock them, we're going to put the heart back into the right rhythm. That's what I decided to do. Um, and then somebody came in and said, oh, the advanced cardiac nurse is coming and giving them some drugs. Now, I hadn't invited the advanced cardiac nurse to come and be part of this. I had a plan for this patient and I was really hacked off. And I went, I went through and at the bottom of the bed, the patient's bed, and this was just really crazy me. At the bottom of the patient's bed, I said, what are you doing? This is my patient. I have a plan. You've come in, you've given my patient drugs. And what I did in that moment was I humiliated my nursing colleagues. I created a environment and resus for other people. And I left a patient feeling as though the left hand and right hand didn't know what they were doing. And I walked away. And do you know how you sort of gather yourself after you've been in these kinds of situations? You think, oh, good grief, what an idiot. And what I had to do is go back. I had to go back and I apologised to the nurses. In fact, I apologised to the nurses in front of the patient because what they suggested was reasonable. It just wasn't what I wanted to do. It was just a different route. That's all. I apologised to them, I apologised to the patient. I did explain to the patient that what the, the nurse had done was was reasonable thing to do. It just wasn't where I where I was going at that moment in time. And then I had to go and speak to the other people who were around in recess, say, listen, I'm sorry, that was an unacceptable way for me to speak. And what we know about that, and this is, I think this is a wee bit crazy. What we know about this is if, if you think someone's a good person or you think they're at whatever level, they then screw up. If that person comes back and apologises for screwing up, we think of them at an even higher level than we thought of in the first place. The act of showing contrition and caring about the people around us means that that person who apologises now seems a better person than they were before they did the bad thing. And this this ability to say sorry is hugely important. And something that some people really need to work on. There are folk out there who cannot say sorry. It's just, it just seems to sort of choke them if they try. I can think of a few people 
everybody always says that. Yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily uh, uh, in my home or work life. I'm just thinking, you know, thinking of the bigger picture. But anyway, well, yeah, Chris, yeah. thank you so much. That's been really enlightening. And I hope that some of our listeners can take some really positive things away from this conversation. Lovely, Alison. Thank you. Yeah.